So welcome to our Saturday seminar, the wisdom of the Bhagavad Gita. And um, our leader of our seminar today is Michael Gadway. And Michael Gadway is a longtime disciple and minister of Mr. Davis. And he's also an Ayurvedic practitioner and he's written several books on yogic philosophy. He's done several workshops for us over the last couple of years, always does a wonderful job and has been kind enough to lead the seminar today for us. So welcome, Michael. It's always a pleasure to have you and um, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Pascal. Hello, everyone. It's nice to see you all today. Um, Today's seminar is the wisdom of the Bhagavad Gita and we have four presenters, myself, But also Pascal Chambers today, she's going to be doing double duty. She's going to be our host and also she's going to enlighten us on karma yoga. She was ordained uh, at the Center for Spiritual Awareness and she's a meditation teacher and yoga teacher for the last 15 years. She started studying with Roy in 2015 and she's also, as you all know, on the staff at CSA as well. So She's a very busy person, especially today. And then Chris Sartain. Chris, will you wave hi? There's Chris Sartain. Chris Sartain is going to be enlightening us on bhakti yoga, the way of devotion today. And Chris was ordained by Roy Eugene Davis in 2012. And he currently resides in Chile. So thank you, Chris, all the way from Chile. And he um, runs uh, the Kriya Yoga Chile Ashram there with his wife, Carolina. Joan Craig is here today, and she's been a member of CSA since 2005. She completed her meditation leader training in the fall of 2020. Joan's going to be talking to us about Raja Yoga, the royal way, the way of meditation today. So before we begin, why don't we just spend a few minutes together in meditation taking our meditation postures, sitting upright, comfortable, firm, chin is parallel to the floor. Let's close our eyes and raise our gaze to look out through that space between the eyebrows, the third eye center, the Ajna chakra. Take a deep breath in and let it go. Inwardly acknowledge first the truth of your own existence that at the core we are individuated units of pure existence being we call souls knowing that we are already that which we most desire we simply have to awaken to it let us acknowledge this kriya yoga guru lineage Mahavatar Bhavaji, Lahiri Mahasayaji, Swami Sri Yukteswarji, Paramahansa Yogananda-ji, and Roy Eugene Davis-ji. Allow the quiet to blossom from within. Let's practice Nadi Shodana, alternate nostril breathing together for just a few minutes, just a few rounds. <clears throat> With the right hand thumb on next to the right nostril, 
two fingers or one finger at the third eye. The other finger is on the left side of the nostril. Closing the right nostril, inhale through the left. Close the left, open the right, exhale through the right. Inhale through the right. Open the left, exhale through the left. That's one round. Let's do that again. Inhale through the left. Close the left, open the right, exhale through the right. Inhale through the right, close it off, open the left, exhale through the left. Let's practice that for just a couple minutes together in the silence. Remembering that dizziness is a stop sign. Gently breathe in and out. There's no need to force it. Let the pranayama do the work. Take a last breath in and let it go. Allowing our attention to be in the third eye or higher chakras. Knowing that there's nothing we have to accomplish. Chant with me, Om Namah Shivaya Harion. Three of each is one round. Om Namah Shivaya. Om Namah Shivaya. Om Namah Shivaya. Harion. Om Namah Shivaya Om 
Take a deep breath in. Let go any stress or tension with the exhale. Inwardly again acknowledge the truth of your existence being. And now in your consciousness, share this knowing, this realization with the world. That what is true for you is also true for every other living creature. Wish for them their highest spiritual good. Divine Mother, Blessed Father, Beloved Friend, God, may your light shine steadily in the sanctuary of our continued devotion, and may we see this same light awakened in all hearts everywhere. Shanti, Shanti, Om Shanti. May absolute peace pervade the universe. May absolute peace pervade the universe. Namaste. So thank you for being here today. Today's topic is the wisdom of the Bhagavad Gita. You know, I think before we start talking about the Bhagavad Gita, it's really important to put it into context. So often I hear people quoting chapter and verse and line even of the Bhagavad Gita, but they take it completely out of context. They apply the line to fulfill whatever expectation they have in order to be validated They go looking for validation, not information. So let's take just a moment to put the Gita in context. The Gita is part of the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata is this huge story. It is seven times longer than the Iliad and the Odyssey of Homer combined. It is three times longer than the Judeo-Christian Bible. It is huge. It's epic on any scale. And the Bhagavad Gita is just a small piece of that. The Mahabharata is 90,000 verses. It's 1.8 million words long. And of that, the Bhagavad Gita is only 700, 701 verses. The Bhagavad Gita is less than 1% of the Mahabharata. But it has become one of the most important, iconic, pieces of literature in history. Even though it takes on such a small percentage of the overall picture of it, it has gained in popularity. It's huge. The the Bhagavad Gita was inserted, interpolated, inserted into the Mahabharata some three or 400 years after the Mahabharata was codified. What the academics have said is that tells us that the the Bhagavad Gita was written for public consumption. It was written for you and me. But before we get to the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata has a really important lesson for us that I want to share with you. Is everybody aware of how we got to this point in the Bhagavad Gita? We got here because Yudhisthira, Arjuna's older brother, lost the kingdom in a game of dice. And it's a really 
important cautionary tale that we understand that we are not to gamble or lead to chance the kingdom of heaven or our spirituality. That if we just gamble it away, we're going to lose it. So before we even got to the Bhagavad Gita, we lost the kingdom by not act being spiritual activists. And one of the most important lessons of the Bhagavad Gita is spiritual activism. Krishna's message is strongly spiritually activating. So if we're going to talk about the symbolism of the Bhagavad Gita, let's start with the name. Gita, everybody knows Gita means song, right? Bhagavad is translated as Lord, so the Lord's song. But if we go just a little bit deeper in the word Bhagavan, it literally also means blessed one. So it's the song of the blessed one. And if we dig just a little bit deeper and look at the Sanskrit meaning of Bhagavad, it's two words. And it literally means dispenser of good fortune. So the Bhagavad Gita is, and by the way, good fortune here doesn't mean luck. It means providence. The word has the sense of providence about it. So it is the song of Arjuna's good fortune as given to him by Lord Krishna. Okay, so it's a very different sort of approach than just a song. It's not just the Lord's song. Does everybody know how uh, Arjuna and, and Krishna came together? Let me, let me tell you that story real quickly. So when Lord Krishna realizes that he cannot broker peace between the two warring clans, he retires back to his palace. And both Arjuna and Duryodhana, and Duryodhana is his enemy, the king of the other clan, Duryodhana means bad fighter, both decide to go ask Lord Krishna for his help. And they both leave to the palace. But Duryodhana gets there first. And he finds Lord Krishna asleep on his couch. And not wanting to wake Lord Krishna up, he stands by Lord Krishna's head. Arjuna arrives shortly after, but Arjuna, being humble, stands at Lord Krishna's feet. So, to Duryodhana's consternation, when Lord Krishna wakes up, he sees Arjuna first. And he asks Arjuna, what do you want from me? And Arjuna says, I want your help. And Krishna says, well... You can either have me or my armies. And to Duryodhana's great delight, Arjuna chooses Lord Krishna. This is a really important point because it's telling us we have to choose good fortune. We have to choose spirituality. We can't wait for it to happen to us. We can't rely on a game of chance for it. But the choice is ours. Arjuna chooses Lord Krishna, he chooses good fortune. Let's talk about the Gita itself. The Gita is 18 chapters about an 18-day war set inside the 18 books of the Mahabharata. The main protagonists are the five Pandava brothers, or Pandus, who have amassed an army with seven divisions in it to fight their enemies, their cousins, the 100 Kaurava brothers, or Kurus, who have amassed an army with 11 divisions in it. 
So on this battlefield, there are 18 divisions prepared to fight this 18-day war. And by the way, if we took the Mahabharata's numbers literally, that would mean 2 million combatants are on the battlefield that day. The vastness of this army, it's really unlikely. There were only about four, four and a half million people in all of India at the time, but it gives you a sense of the vastness of this battle. And even more importantly, at the end of this war, all two million combatants are dead. So devastating is this war, so genocidal, all two million are dead. Only seven, I'm giving you the stink eye, seven combatants remain alive. The five Pandava brothers, Lord Krishna, and Bhishma. And we'll talk about Bhishma in just a minute. The other protagonist, Lord Krishna, lives for another 18 years after the 18-day battle. So if we're going to be talking about the symbolic nature of the Bhagavad Gita, we really have to look at the number 18. It has been intentionally peppered throughout the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita. The the number 18, by the way, it has as many uh, meanings as 108 does. I mean, if we looked it up, I could be here over the weekend just talking about number 18. We're only going to look at two today. The first meaning we're going to look at is one plus eight is nine. And as if you ask any Vedic astrologer, nine is the symbolic number for dharma. Excuse me. And in fact, the Bhagavad Gita has been called Dharma Shastra. Shastra means textbook. So the Bhagavad Gita is a textbook on Dharma. So it's really important for us to understand Dharma because the whole Gita is based on Dharma. And quite honestly, Westerners are not good at the word Dharma. The word Dharma itself, its root, its Sanskrit root is Dri, D-H-R-I. And Dri means that which supports. But more importantly, it implies that which supports from within. So your dharma is the framework upon which you build your life. Dharma is the, it's the very fabric we sew our lives together with. Let me sort of illustrate this with a story. Sit back, get comfortable. I got a story for you. (laughs) One day a sage, a great sage, was sitting on the banks of the Ganges, meditating. And while he was meditating, he looked down and there thrashing about in the water was a scorpion drowning. And the sage reached down and picked up the scorpion and put him on the bank. And of course, as he does so, the scorpion stings him. The sage goes back to meditating. And a short while later, he opens his eyes and there again in the water thrashing about is the same scorpion drowning again. And he reaches down and he picks up the scorpion and he puts it on the bank again. And of course, the scorpion once again stings him. A bystander is watching all this happen. He comes up and he asks the sage, sir, why are you helping this wretched creature who you know is only going to sting you? To which the sage responds, it is the dharma of the scorpion to sting, but it is the dharma of the human being to save. You see, Dharma is more than just a way to behave. 
It's more than right action. It's more than right duty. It's more even than the law. Dharma to the Bhagavad Gita, Dharma is the essence of a thing. Dharma is the essence of the Bhagavad Gita. And to understand the Gita, we have to live and understand Dharma. You see? So Dharma isn't something we sit in meditation for a few minutes a day, or we pray and chant or sing a few minutes a day and we're done. Dharma is a way of life. Yeah? So there's this great saying that comes before the Bhagavad Gita, and it's yato dharma tata krishna. And it says, where dharma is, there is Krishna. The whole Bhagavad Gita, its foundation is dharma. To put that in Yoganandaji's words, read a little, meditate more, think of God all the time. This is dharma. The other meaning of 18 that we're going to look at today is, in Vedic scripture, 18 often means self-sacrifice, self with a small s, as in ego. And in fact, we find the Bhagavad Gita has been interpolated, uh, inserted into the Mahabharata, into book six of the Mahabharata titled Bhishma Parva, or Book of Bhishma. And Bhishma is ego. So all of book six is about self-sacrifice, about the ego. And Bhishma itself means terrifying or frightening. That's how it is the most, he is the most powerful warrior on the other side. Okay. But there's a really interesting thing about this. Bhishma loves the Pandava brothers. He loves them so much that he refuses to kill them or harm them. He loves them so much that he actually teaches Arjuna how to kill him. He tells Arjuna, stand behind, I have to look this name up, Shikandan, to shoot your arrows, Arjuna the great archer, to kill me. Shikandan was a female who became a male. And Bhishma, ego, will not fight him. This concept is peppered throughout the Bhagavad Gita. This idea that the male and female energies must be balanced. Right brain and left, right brain and left brain have to be balanced in order to fight. And with a balanced left brain and right brain, ego will not stand against you. And this uh, concept is everywhere in the Bhagavad Gita. We'll talk about it a little bit more. Okay. So in fact, Arjuna does follow Bhishma's orders and on the 10th day of battle he shoots from behind Shikandan and kills Bhishma he kills ego but there's a catch Bhishma has been granted a boon by Vyasa the sage and writer of this story and that boon is Bhishma even when killed can choose the moment of his death So Bhishma dies on the 10th day, but chooses not to die until later. And in fact, it's up to Bhishma to decide when he dies. This is very symbolic, meaning you cannot 
with an act of will or violence kill the ego. The ego must surrender itself. Remember only seven people alive after this battle? Five Pandavas, Krishna, and Bhishma. It's this understanding that we do not force the ego to dissolve. And this is in direct line with my own guru's teaching. Roy often said in class over the years, I heard him say it over and over again, we do not cause enlightenment to happen. We prepare for it. So this is a very important lesson in the Bhagavad Gita. We're not trying to force anything. The minute we try to force it, it's egotistical. So Bhishma must surrender itself. That's this idea that we don't give away anything. We accept everything. Right? So that leads us to this moment of the Bhagavad Gita. And that is Krishna and Arjuna in the chariot on the hill, five horses. And most of us know the symbolism, but let's just talk about it for a minute. The chariot we know is the body. The five horses are the senses. The reins are the mind. But the reins are not just the mind. The reins represent manas. The reins are the thinking principle. And I'll tell you why this is important. And in the chariot, Lord Krishna and Arjuna are standing. Lord Krishna, however, has two roles this day. Today, he is both advisor, but he is also charioteer. That's a really important understanding that Krishna at this point in the story is charioteer because charioteer represents buddhi, this intuitive intelligence. Buddhi is the window through which, better yet, the mirror in which the soul views itself, views, views itself. Okay, so here is Krishna playing this intuitive role as well as being advisor. This is telling us that this entire dialogue, this entire conversation is happening inside. It's an intuitive process. Okay, and it's booty through which this process happens, this intuitive intelligence through which it happens. And of course, Krishna is Brahma also, and Arjuna is Atman, universal spirit, individualized soul, spiritual seeker. To go a little deeper into this, of course, <laughs> the word Krishna means black the word arjuna means white the gita implies that in this cacophony this horrible mess that's going on arjuna and krishna are going to make everything black and white they're going to clarify everything for us this dialogue will clean up our confusion they'll make everything black and white now, also, both Krishna and Arjuna are part of the lunar dynasty. This conversation is all going on in the right side of the brain. It's all going on intuitively. All right. This is all an internal process that's happening. Now, not only is Arjuna part of the lunar dynasty, he also represents for us the third chakra. The third chakra is the solar 
plex, the solar plex. It's this idea that even though this conversation is going on in the right brain, it's an intuitive conversation, there must be third chakra, there must be right action followed up. There must be dharma followed through with. Does that make sense to everybody? So we have the lunar dynasty encouraging the solar plexus, the third chakra, to right action here. So I have to ask, you know, is there an overall message from Krishna with this, if we looked at it the big picture? And the answer is yes. The number one overall message that I walked away with is this idea of spiritual activism. And you all know that Gandhi's entire movement was based on the Gita, his passive resistance movement. So we know, because we talked about it, that the Bhagavad Gita is Dharma Shastra. But it's also Moksha Shastra, right? It's a textbook on Dharma, but it's also a textbook on liberation, isn't it? But it's really interesting because even though Dharma is so important, there are several ex, uh, examples when Krishna says point blank to Arjuna that if you have to choose between Dharma and Moksha, you always choose moksha. This is a really important point. And during the war itself, after the Gita, Krishna and Arjuna are in the chariot and they're battling one of Arjuna's enemies, chariot to chariot. And during that battle, the enemy's chariot gets stuck in the mud. And the protocol in those days was, if the enemy's chariot was stuck in the mud, you backed away let them get their act together, and then you come at each other, mano y mano equals one-on-one. And as Arjuna is pulling his chariot back, because the dharma was, you gave the enemy a chance to get their act together, and as Arjuna pulls back the chariot, Lord Krishna leans in and says, no, no, strike, strike now. Well, you can imagine the academics had a field day over this wait a minute, this violates ahimsa. Does everybody know ahimsa? Yeah, non-harming, harmlessness. But now ahimsa literally means to not strike. Ahimsa comes from han to strike. So here's Lord Krishna telling Arjuna, ahimsa, ahimsa, strike, strike now. It violates ahimsa. How do we reconcile that? Well, I think we all know that this is an internal dialogue, right? Krishna's not literally telling Arjuna or us to go out and kill people. We are to destroy our enemies, the kleshas. Klesha, the word klesha comes from the root, Sanskrit root klist, meaning affliction. Those afflictions and restrictions and blockades in the mind that prevent the booty from being clear enough or clean enough for us to see through it. So this is an internal act. The best response I ever read for this criticism actually came from Gandhi. To this criticism, Gandhi said this. Base your life on the Gita and see if you find killing or hurting others compatible with its teachings. And again, he based an entire movement on these teachings. 
it's really important for us to understand the place the Gita has taken in the lives of India. It has become so important to understand that it has become what academics call Vede Mecham. Vede Mecham is a handbook that you keep on your person or near your person at all times as a guide or a reference. They keep it on their person at all times. The Gita has transcended literature. It has concretized liturgy. It is a handbook on how to. So important has it become dharmically. So I ask myself, are there requirements listed in the Gita to practice this dharma, this yoga? And the answer is yes. Lord Krishna does give us one requirement, and it surprised me. It wasn't what I thought at all. He says the one requirement to practice this yoga is absolute surrender. That really caused me grief, I have to tell you. How do I absolutely surrender and be a spiritual warrior fighting and killing these enemies at the same time? That's really challenging for me. What I came up with was this. We are not to train the mind to manipulate spirit or manipulate our world. That is very clear. We are to train the mind to serve spirit and to serve our spiritual evolution and the spiritual evolution of the world. To train the mind to manipulate anything in any way is ego. Absolute surrender is a requirement to embody these teachings. That's not me. That's Krishna. Okay. So I also ask myself, well, what are the signs of someone who does embody these teachings? And again, I was really surprised. I expected a litany of superpowers, like the Yoga Sutras. But again, that's not what Krishna says. Later on in the Gita, he does list a whole bunch of things. But the first thing he says, someone who is established in self-knowledge, that's with a capital S, realization, is one who has conquered all the desires of the mind. One who has gotten rid of all selfish desires. So it's not about what you can and can't do spiritually. It's about looking inside and saying, am I still hungering for things? Do I still want to manipulate my world to get what I want? Am I deluding myself by saying this is the spiritual act? All desires of the mind are gone. Okay. So how do we do that? We know we're not destroying the ego. What are the ways when we get to the point where we have surrendered all the desires of the mind, overcome them? Well, Lord Krishna teaches us four ways. The first way is jnana yoga, the way of wisdom. Jnana itself has more a sense of gnosis, that is, spiritual knowledge. 
And this comes from Samkhya Yoga. As a matter of fact, Krishna calls it almost everywhere in the Gita. He doesn't say it's just yoga. He calls it Samkhya Yoga. And he says, Yana is understood through Samkhya. And in Samkhya, not just enumeration, by the way, Samkhya is an entire philosophy. I recommend studying it. Samkhya says that Yana, wisdom, comes as a result of Viveka, discrimination. This idea of being able to know the difference between real, the real and the unreal. Yana yoga. Union through wisdom. The next way he talks about is karma yoga, which Pascal Chambers is going to work on next, enlighten us on that. That is union through action, right action, specifically, in my opinion, selfless right action. And then Chris Sartain is going to help us. He's going to be talking about bhakti yoga, that is union through devotion. The way of devotion. And then finally, Joan Craig is here. And Joan Craig is going to enlighten us on Raja Yoga, the royal way, the way of meditation. But because we talk about these paths, it doesn't mean you have to be all of one, none of the others. Many of us are a blend. I consider myself a Kriya yogi. Kriya is an emphasis. Roy would tell me Kriya is an emphasis. It's not a separate path. You can be devotional and still practice jhana. So you don't have to get caught up on one or the other, black or white. In this case, I remember Roy one time, it caught me off guard because he told us a story when he was first meditating. He was meditating six, seven, eight hours a day. And he would tell us his routine he went through. And one of the parts of his routine is he would say he often chanted for a long time. And he said, I loved to chant. And it sort of surprised me because I always thought of Roy as being so yana yogi, but he had this very devotional side to him. And that's okay for all of us. So when we come back, we're going to have a five-minute break. Uh, Pascal Chambers is going to give me the host power, and she's going to be talking to us about the karma yoga of the Bhagavad Gita. So thank you for listening to me today. I'll see you in five. <laughs> 